the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 2, it is a delight to bring back our good friend, presidential historian, author, uh, Dr. Tevi Choi, his most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. There are probably, yeah, four people who I can credit my career in public policy, radio, broadcasting, and politics to. Uh, and Tevi is uh, the first and foremost of them. So anyone who has uh, trouble with me, take it to him. He caused all this. Tevi, welcome back. Well, with that intro, I'm uh, glad to be here, Seth, and uh, happy to be in some minor way responsible for your radio career. You're in good company, and, and they're in good company. The company is you, Harry Jaffa, William Bennett, and my GM, Jim Ryan. Pretty good company, that. All good folks. I've interacted with all of them. Obviously, Dr. Jaffa is no longer with us, yeah. but uh, but a great intellect and a great force, and someone I think we'll be talking about today, because I really appreciated what you said about him in your monologue. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Before we get into conservatism, Tevi, can I read something I know you'll love? I just know you'll love it, and I know we didn't rehearse this, but we never rehearse. True. This is uh, from a guy I don't know. You may. Uh, someone named Richard Whitmire. Maybe you know him. A bit perplexing, amusing to watch parents and politicians during COVID figure out that school boards, district administrators, and local politicians don't run schools. Unions do. Don't feel naive. It took me a decade to figure that out. Hmm. I just knew you'd like that. Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, I like it, but I also hate it. Yeah. Right. It's, it's very sad what's going on. I mean, it seems to me like the school or the schools are being blackmailed by these unions, and every time they make accommodations to the unions, the unions say, well, no, we want more, we want more. And uh, there, there's no check on them, and especially in the Biden administration, there, there certainly won't be any criticism of them. Uh, my children happen to go to private school, yeah. and they've been, not only did they have Zoom school continuously in the spring, but this entire fall semester, they were in real school. Yeah. They went, they go to school every day with all kinds of protocols and protections, and they have not gotten the virus. And there's been no widespread outbreak of the virus, and there have been a couple of scares, but Any it teachers has not die? been an issue. Any teachers die, Tevi? No teachers have died. Good, good. Well, that's what we're talking thank God. about. Yeah, no, thank God. I've got, I, no, of course. And it's an amazing thing when you see the CDC director, this new one, R- Rochelle Walensky, saying schools should reopen and Saki standing there and saying she is not speaking officially for the CDC, but in her personal capacity. How long can this farce go on? <laughs> Maybe Saki's speaking in her personal capacity. How do we know she's speaking in her official capacity? I give her about a month and a half. You think she'll last a little longer, Saki? You know this stuff. You know, here's the thing. In a Republican administration, month and a half, but she gets such yeah. uh, kind of, such um, yeah. carry. She gets she's carried by the media yeah. in a way yeah. that will extend her tenure yeah. beyond what, what it should be. That's a good point. That's a good point. 
Yeah, there, there's an old joke among uh, Republican press secretaries on the Hill. Yeah. They say, what do Democratic press secretaries actually do? Right. Because <laughs> the right. media just writes their right. member's story right. for them. So, right. And the Republican right. press secretaries have to work. Right, <laughs> right, right. That's a good point. So as you know, we get uh, emails and calls and questions here asking about conservatism, and they like the fact that, you know, there's um, – there's some learning here about it, and um, they 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 want uh, they have asked if I could help try and define it and explain what it is. Uh, let me start with this with you, Tevi. Um, in his third book, Up from Liberalism, William Buckley, in his introduction, says today, and so this night, nineteen sixty sixty one, somewhere around there, not much later, he says um, liberalism today is powerful but decadent. Conservatism is weak but viable. Do you say that's an accurate assessment of where we are today or ungenerous to conservatism on the weak front? I would say it's weak right now. Yeah. I was on a panel discussion last night and I was asked about the, the state of Republican conservatism and I, I said embattled. But if you had asked me on November 10th, shortly after the election, I would have said emboldened. Uh, so it doesn't take that far to go from emboldened to embattled. So I, I do think it's weak at the moment. I do think we are kind of figuring out who are our next Buckleys, who are going to be the next conservative leaders that are going to take us forward into the next generation. But I, I don't think it's a, a bad description, but I would be wary of assuming that it's a permanent description. Buckley wrote this 40, 50 years ago. Right. You're not weak forever. Um, unfortunately, I think... Uh, Liberalism might be decadent forever, and I just read Ross Douthat's book on um, you know, the decadent society, uh, which, was, which was bracing. So I think Buckley has, has a strong point, but I don't think we should just get in the woe is me camp and say, right. oh, we're right. weak and always going to be weak. Right, right, right. I was talking with John Hinderocker on that very point yesterday, and he takes offense at the notion that we're weak when he thinks about all the people that risk their lives to fight for freedom and have throughout history and do today in other countries. He said we have no right to think of ourselves as weak or, more importantly, to act weak. It's an interesting— Again, let me make Go a point ahead. Yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Conservatism is stronger today than it was 25 years ago in part because of Hinderocker and, yep. and Powerline yep. and, and what they've accomplished, and, and the fact that there are new outlets for conservative voices, and we're always hearing the stuff about, oh, they want to censor us. But it's hard to censor when you have so many conservative outlets. I know they're going to try, and there will be certain conservatives who are censored, and, I, and as you and I have discussed in the air many times, cancel culture is a real concern. But I think there are just many more ways to get out conservative messages today than there were when you and I were getting our start in this business in the late 80s, early 90s. I think you're right about that. But I think I would also say something else is true, which is um, the media uh, and the cultural elites have become more liberal and more left. So I think the fight is harder in a sense. We have a stronger army, but they do, too is what I want to say. Yes, but, and here's the, here's the but again, yeah. which is in the 60s, yeah. they assumed that they had Everything. the commanding heights yep. of the culture yep. and that there was no other right. perspective that yep. could be heard. Walter yep. Cronkite would speak, and you know, I, I just read this great biography of Walter Cronkite, uh, and he said in the book he would give these radio commentaries on CBS the same days that he would give his famous television news uh, anchor shows, and he was much more open about his liberalism on his radio show. And he said, I can't believe they let me say all this stuff on the air. Yeah. So the, the only ways, the only outlets in those days 
only mainstream outlets were liberal left outlets. Yep. Maybe they weren't as explicit about their liberalism, but they were confident knowing that you weren't going to get conservative views from anywhere else. Right. Now, right. these right. conservative views, they might emerge, or you might come across a power line, or you might come across, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial pages right. uh, is a conservative force in a way that it wasn't, let's say, the 50s and 60s. I mean, that's something that was a development of more in the late 60s, early 70s. So I think there are just more ways to get conservative views today, and I think that's a good thing for us. I'm going to go to intellectual conservatism in a minute, but let me do political, too, with you for a second, because a point I've been making, you may disagree, you may counter countermand this, a point I've been making to some who are uh, disheartened is that the conservative bench – don't not the Republican bench, but the conservative bench – is much stronger now than I can remember it being. To wit, Goldwater was an anomaly in the party. Reagan was an anomaly in the party. In fact, challenged a sitting Republican president and then he became obviously the president – but he didn't have he didn't have a ton. He didn't have the whole Republican Party with him. Yeah, there were some Reagan babies, and um, you know they they unseated some people in in the in the long tradition of liberalism, like Birch Bayh and people like that in 1980, right? Dan Quayle did people like that, but there wasn't a ton of them. The bench now, you think about people like conservatives that you know uh, the red the red meat. Uh, part of the of the of the movement likes just in the Senate, a Ted Cruz, let's say, or a Tom Cotton, uh, let's say, a, a Josh Hawley, let's say. You look at governors like Noam or DeSantis. You could probably name others. Th- those are no. I could name others too. That's a bigger group of conservatives than has instantiated the party in times past. My my sense. It's not even a question. Seth. Oh, okay. I just thought I was going to have to the, argue it to you. Okay. No, All right. If you look back in the All 1970s right. okay. at the Republican caucus yeah. in the Senate, yeah. you had a James Buckley. It was great. Yeah. And you had a Barry Goldwater. But the group of conservatives, I mean, they were the minority. They were more like the Susan Collins today. Yeah. I mean, Susan yeah. Collins is the outlier today as this representative of the old line New England, Northeastern, liberal to moderate Republican. Okay. That species no longer exist. Now, it is a problem in terms of there are very few House seats that come from the Northeast, and right. very few Senate seats right. that come from the Northeast. But this whole idea that the Republicans would be divided between the conservatives and the liberal moderates is no longer the case. You see it that You've way, too. got a few, yeah. but the vast majority of people who get elected as Republicans in both the House and the Senate are conservative Republicans. Yeah. Now, there's division sure. within the party, sure. but it's not conservative versus moderate anymore. No, right. That's a, okay. You agree. Good. All right. We got the political out of the way. Let's come back to the intellectual foundations when we come back. We'll be right back with presidential historian Tevi Troy. His most recent book, it's a great one, really fun, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Feel free to call in, too, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest. He is presidential historian, author of many, many books. His most recent one, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. We're talking about origins uh, and the meaning of conservatism in American uh, political and intellectual life. So, Tevi, we talked a little bit about political. We can return to it if you want, because, of course, that's what's important at the end of the day. I mean, I th- in my view, you know, the intellect is, 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 is our first love. But if we can't translate it into policy, um, then, you know, we might as well go home and, and, and just have sewing circles. 
So let's start with the intellectual conservative movement in America and where it came from and what it is. It, um, Lionel Trilling, when did he say this? He said liberalism is the and sole intellectual tradition in America and that conservatism is nothing more than mental, irritable mental irritable gestures mental that gestures. resemble ideas. Yeah. Seek to resemble ideas. Seek to resemble ideas. They don't Some, resemble them. Yeah, somewhere around 1952 or 1950. Something. Okay, okay. So that changed pretty quickly. It did and it didn't. Okay. So it's it certainly... So the kind of condescension towards conservatism that Trilling displayed, even though he became more conservative over time, uh, is still there. That, that's for sure. And this notion that there was no notion of conservatism in American life is, I think, also a falsehood. Because I think the, the framers were, the founders, they were conservative. I think they believed in God and liberty and all the things that we, we believe today. I just think there was not an organized conservative intellectual movement okay. before Buckley in the 1950s. Okay. And I think that was a very important watershed moment. Okay. So what Buckley did, I called him the godfather of conservatism the other day, and someone said, what do you exactly mean by that? And I said, well, Aristotle said power is the ability to be and make things be. And not only was he a force in his own right, but you know a lot of conservative intellectuals, some have told me this, would have had no career without William Buckley. He gave them a place to publicize their ideas. Yeah, well, and look, Richard Lowry, who's now the editor of National Review, he said that when he was growing up, he wasn't exposed to conservative ideas, and then he saw this magazine, National Review, and he was determined to read the magazine cover to cover until he understood all the references, okay. which I think is a really important point, because yeah. it's, it's an erudite magazine. Yeah. It is not... It's not there. It's not in Popular Mechanics or Entertainment Weekly. It's not. It's not easy access. You need to understand the references and the different difficult vocabulary that's in there. But someone like Rich was inspired, and obviously now he goes and he's the he's the editor of the magazine himself today. So I think Buckley and his model really did inspire a whole generation of conservatives, even ones who didn't know him personally. I, I was privileged to meet him once briefly at the White House, but I, I can't claim to know him. Uh, but I was certainly inspired by him. Did he inspire you more than uh, – would he be the most important conservative in your intellectual development? That's a good question. Uh, Irving Kristol, I think, that yeah. really spoke to me yeah. at an age, an early age, in 1920, around there. When mm-hmm. I, when I, remember, I still remember the moment when I first read his name. When you were 19 or 20, let me clarify. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> when you were 19 or 20. Okay. When I was 19 or 20, yeah. I first read his name. and. It was an article by Charles Krauthammer, yeah. and Charles Krauthammer said that, um, to quote Irving Kristol, the organization of American states is just like the United Nations, except we only get denounced in three languages, <laughs> thereby saving translator fees. <laughs> That's really funny. It That's... jumped out the page of me, and I said, that guy is funny. That's really <laughs> and funny. And I want to learn more about him. Does it get us? And then within two years of that, I was working at the American Enterprise Institute and close friends with a lot of friends of the public interest and regularly seeing Irving Kristol smoking his cigarettes and making his pronouncements. Right, right. Okay, so uh, the audience was talking to me about what would be my five most influential books on me. I think I shared them with you, and maybe that gets us to help define and understand conservatism. Maybe it doesn't, but the authors were Harry Jeff, Myron Magnet, Whitaker Chambers. Uh, William Buckley and Barry Goldwater's book, Conscience of a Conservative, which is actually a deeply politically philosophical tract. 
uh, more 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 political philosophy than than politics. And I, I don't know if that gets us to a definition because it's interesting. William Buckley never did write a book on conservatism. He was asked a million times and he never did. He wrote a book on liberalism, but he didn't write a book defining conservatism. Yeah, it's interesting. I think maybe he he certainly did some policing to say who should not be okay. conservative movement. So okay. it's the Birchers, the anti-Semites. Yeah. And, and I think that policing is a necessary function. But I think maybe he didn't write that book on conservatism because he believed in a big tent form of conservatism. He yep. didn't want to say, this is conservative right. and nothing else. Right. right. I think he wanted to say to certain things, this is not conservatism and you are not welcome here. Right. Right. So, um, George Nash, who wrote one of the most important books on conservatism, really uh, probably probably the, the, the best or the, or the foundational biography of the intellectual conservative movement, he talked about Buckley, how in Buckley's own right – you know, he represented so many different strands of conservatism. He had his own talents, but he was a traditional Catholic, a defender of the free market, and a staunch anti-communist. And that was the first wave of the intellectual conservative movement before neoconservatism came along and really before Straussianism came along in a way too, wasn't it? Religious, yeah, well, libertarian, and, and anti-communist. You, yeah. What you just laid out were basically the tenets of fusionism. Right, right. They had to say what is what brings these disparate groups together, and uh, Eugene Meyer had this theory of fusionism. Frank where he Meyer. Said, let's, Frank let's, Meyer. Oh, sorry, Frank Meyer. Eugene yeah. Meyer's his son. Right. Um, and Meyer's theory of fusionism really kind of brought these strands together, and it reached its political apotheosis, its political uh, reasoning and um, realization in the Reagan administration. Right. And I think all those strains were represented by Reagan. And then in subsequent years, it's been hard for conservatism to find its way, especially in the aftermath of the Cold War, since opposition to communism was such a defining aspect of what conservatism was. And we defeated communism. It's great. It's a huge victory. But after huge victories, you still need to go on and conquer other terrains. And I think conservatism has been struggling with that for a while. Yeah, because that's two out of those. It's one out of those three. There are two still left, right? The traditionalism and the free market part. Yeah, the anti-communism. Maybe there's a cause for it again vis-a-vis China. There doesn't. It's an interesting thing. The conservative movement hasn't geared up against China in the way it did the Soviet Union, although it did once. You know, it did once when we were trying to normalize things with China under the Nixon administration. There was a huge revolt of the conservative movement against Nixon. There was the Committee of One Million. Uh, I remember William Buckley himself talked about Richard Nixon as an embarrassment. I remember Ronald Reagan, of course, even as governor, was pronouncing on foreign policy against China. <laughs> but and in retrospect, maybe they were right. Yeah, no, well, I, not maybe, as far as I'm concerned, not maybe. But even with the absence of the Soviet Union, if it was one of those three things that united us, why do we have – I mean only one – only really one victory. We haven't, we haven't realized, in your words, realized or reified the victories traditionalism. We haven't done it perhaps with markets. We haven't done it with a lot of things and I'm wondering if why, – why, why is it so hard for conservatives to find a fusion or unite? And as we go to break, maybe you can think on that. We can come back on that. Sure, I'd be happy to explain yeah, on that. Great. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Tevi Troy, author of Fight House Rivalries from Truman to Trump. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. 
Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, author of many books, historian, cultural and presidential historian, his most recent fight house, rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, trying to understand the conservative movement. Uh, Tevi, we talked about the defeat of communism as, as one big, huge victory that maybe changed the conservative movement in a sense because it was never as as cohesive as uh, since as it was before. Um, and it wasn't always totally cohesive. There were, of course, rifts and, and rivalries in the conservative movement. Maybe that's your next book. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, House Divided or something like that. Rivalries in the conservative movement from, I don't know, figure it out. But 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 maybe the China thing has more to do with it than, than I thought. On, on retrospect over the break, I was thinking, you know, China divided the Republican Party, certainly, in the 90s um, and in the 2000s. And it's flexing its muscles now and showing itself to be an irredentistly communist country in a way that a lot of people were willing to forgive and think, well, maybe the free markets that they were showing themselves open to would convert them, forgetting a lesson of Milton Friedman's, which is you can't have economic liberty without individual liberty. And so maybe maybe we're coming back around on this um, in, in some respects, but maybe the world is even more dangerous in some respects as a result of China. It, it clearly is dangerous as a result of China. I think China is a little different than the Soviet Union in that it it does not appear bent on the same kind of conquest. It doesn't it, it doesn't appear that it wants its communist system to dominate the world. Right. But it does want to reduce the power of the United States. Yeah. It does want to expand its sphere of influence. It is certainly interested in Taiwan. So there, there are dangers from China, and it is building and developing alliances with nations that don't have our interests at heart. So China is a danger, but perhaps not in the same way that the Soviet Union was. More regional in a sense, too, right? I mean, the Soviet Union was all over the world. Now, I mean, people will say, well, what's China doing in the Middle East and what's it doing? But it is different. It is a different level. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. And I don't think they're trying to make uh, Saudi Arabia or Egypt into Chinese right. satellites. Right, 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 exactly. They do want them to be allies, right. dependent on them, right. but it's, it's, they don't want them to adopt the Chinese. Right, system. they're not creating Middle Eastern Arab terror groups like the Soviet Union right. did. Exactly. Um, okay, Tevi, um, then there, 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 there also were divisions in the conservative movement between traditionalists and... Uh, neoconservatives, uh, you liked, you said Irving Kristol had a big impact on you as a thinker. Um, he was the founding of the, probably the, the, the titled founder of the neoconservative movement. I was right in my monologue, wasn't I, when I said, you know, people always think of neocons now as, as some kind of foreign policy types. The, the, rare was the pronouncement on foreign policy in the first 20 years of neoconservatism. Yeah, of course. And, and we know this because Irving created a magazine called The Public Interest right. that focused on domestic policy. Right. And it was only years later that he created a foreign policy analog called The National Interest. Right. So it was, it was much greater, far, domestic policy was a much greater interest of his. And it's interesting the way he approached domestic policy in The Public Interest, which is being carried over to some degree by National Affairs Successor magazine, which is it's focused on data and argument. It said, we're not just going to blindly accept liberal arguments that because we're compassionate, we're, we're providing more compassionate benefits to people. Do these benefits actually work? Does affirmative action work? Do, wealth, do greater welfare benefits work? What's going on with crime? And they took this very rigorous sociological approach to policies and found that many liberal policies were found wanting. 
And I think they, that was a huge service, and that's what brought people like me into the movement. Irving uh, Crystal once said that a neoconservative is a uh, liberal who was mugged by reality. And it's interesting that a lot of neoconservatives were former uh, liberals or Democrats. But, you know, it's, it's also uncharitable to only say that. Uh, or, or overly charitable, perhaps, when you think about all the people that constituted the original new right, the Whitaker Chambers types and the Frank Meyer types and the original editorial uh, board of National Review outside of Buckley. A lot of them were converts, too. Yeah, many of them were former communists. Right, 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 right. So they were mugged, they were, they were mugged by they, foreign policy reality. Right. And maybe from a slightly different milieu. Um, Religion. And, um, and less interested in the, the sociology, they, they were less likely to be kind of uh, PhDs in the um, in, in the kind of economic and, and political science type arenas. They were more, I think, attracted to uh, philosophy. I think that's a possible and religion. I think they were yeah, mostly yeah, adher- deeply adherents uh, adherents of the Christian faith. Whereas neocons, a fair amount of Jews, I don't know how religious it wasn't. It wasn't an orthodoxy. Uh, around Judaism, it was more of a cultural thing. Uh, let me I, com- I think they said that uh, Urban Crystal is in favor of Orthodox Judaism, but not in, in, in one who is inclined to practice right, it himself. Right, <laughs> right, right. Which is not what you would say about Buckley or Chambers. All right. When we come back, you tell me where we are today, and t- tell me about the Straussians, which is uh, the, the most uh, the most under uh, under misunderstood part of the conservative movement. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you want improved health, high energy, and boosted immunity, you want balance of nature. I take it every single day. It's the most effective whole food supplement on the market that gives you 10 servings of fruits and vegetables in one daily dose. Good, potent, strong stuff. Apples, blueberries, oranges, garlic, onions, spinach, wheatgrass. It's got tens of thousands of vital nutrients in that one daily dose, and I can't say enough about it. It's kept me healthy for over a year. My friends love it. My family loves it. And right now, Balance of Nature has a great deal where they're offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Guarantees you whole uh, wholesale pricing throughout the life of your uh, tenure with Balance of Nature. Give them a call at 800 800- Two four six eight seven fifty one, or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. You'll be glad you did. Our guest, Heavy Troy, presidential and cultural historian, um, we're talking about conservatism and the modern conservative movement as uh, per listener request. And we've covered most of the, mo- most of the elements of the movement, Tevi, except this, uh, this abstruse one known as Straussianism. Yes, and I'm glad you used the word abstruse, because one of the rules of Straussianism <laughs> is any Straussian does not like Straussianism to be defined and will be unhappy with whatever definition yeah. you put forward. Yeah, whatever we say, we will be wrong. Right. 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 It's kind of like a rules of fight, fight club. It's a like, like fight, fight club. club. It's, about, about, fight the Mar- it's about the Groucho Marx club. <laughs> that doesn't the rule of Straussianism right. is you never attempt to, deny, to define Straussianism. Right. Right. However, I will say that I once did endeavor to move in this direction, and I was at a party uh, back you know, when we could go to parties and um, in, my, in my younger days because it was a keg party, and I remember a fellow coming up to me with a beer in his hand 
whom I had never met before, and I still don't know who this person is because I never saw him again, but he said, dude, that footnote you wrote on East Coast versus West Coast Strassianism was awesome. Really? Yes. I've never had anybody praise a footnote of mine. So Do you remember who said it? I don't. Oh, my gosh. It was somebody I didn't know, okay. and uh, obviously he was somewhat well-versed in Strassianism. And I will, uh, I will actually have the footnote in front of me. It's from my, my first book called Intellectuals in the American Presidency, Philosophers, Gestures, or Technicians. Okay. And it's relatively short, but I will say, yeah. here it is. Yeah. I'm talking about East Coast, West Coast Straussianism. And what I said is the divide between the East Coast and West Coast Straussianism, Straussians is far too complex to be covered fully here. But the basic dispute questions whether Strauss believed American founding represented the Aristotelian political ideal. The West Coasters believed that it did. That's pretty that good. Kind of sums that's it pretty up good. In a nutshell. Yeah. But that's that said, pretty it was, it was good. Dangerous territory to even attempt it. That's pretty good. But let's do it this way. It was a uh, based on a emigre uh, from uh, from uh, Germany named Leo Strauss who came to America in the war years and taught at the New School for Social Research in the University of Chicago and created a cadre of students who would become very much more well-known than he in some respects. Almost everyone in this audience will know who Alan Bloom is, for example. To the degree they listen to this show, they will know who Walter Burns and Harry Jaffa are, for example. There were others. Um, But what they tried to do was reconcile um, ancient political philosophy. By ancient, we're talking the Greeks – and biblical uh, revelation, right? So they talk about the admixture of Athens and Jerusalem as creating the Western tradition, which is to them the highest uh, form of civilization. And yes, they grew into a debate amongst themselves, East Coast, West Coast, over how much the United States represented that ideal. How's that? That's pretty darn good, Seth. I hope we, we have a transcript of this show. Uh, but, but I will say this. Straussianism was not necessarily a philosophy in the way that you'd say, oh, uh, Milton Friedman's right. belief in markets. Right. It was a way of thinking. Right. And it was a recognition of the greatness of Western civilization. And I think if we are going to define conservatism, it would be a recognition of the importance of Western civilization, a sense of gratitude towards Western civilization from bringing humanity up from the muck. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. So, for example, one of the reasons we study Plato, or used to, is we we thirst or thought it important to thirst for an understanding of what is justice. And among other things, right? Fair enough so far? Absolutely. Okay, so we want to think about what is justice. And conservatives, or at least conservatives who um, who think deeply about these things – really really care about what what a just regime is or or what the just ends of government are let's say um whereas we take this kind of philosophy or political philosophy very seriously in a way that the left does not so we would we would engage in deep conversations about what is just and the left will just steamroll over that and create something called social justice a different kind of justice a new form of justice Along the way, by the way, getting rid of the ancient Western uh, canon of books like Plato and Aristotle and, 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 and use it to mean anything they want to based on their whimsy. Fair enough? True, but also they have this new concept of equity, yep. which is yep. complete equality of results in all cases. Right. 
which you know it gets you to uh, what was that um, that Vonnegut book, uh, Harrison Oberon or something like that. Harrison where, uh, Bergeron, yeah. Bergeron, right? right. Where uh, the people who were fast runners yep. were would be weighed down yep. with a heavy ball, yep. so they couldn't run as quickly. Right. Uh, People who people thought better, better had, be, had their, had their thoughts together. glasses yep. so they couldn't yep. see as well. Right, right. Uh, it, it gets to a very dangerous place very quickly, and uh, I, I worry about this new manifestation of leftism. Is it, leftism is it racial or is it economic, or is it, is it, is it kind of a, a Marxism based on both? Marxism was originally based on a class war. I, I think the neo-Marxists are, are, are merging class and race. Oh, absolutely, and okay. and they pick favorites among the races yeah, right. because they, as the they did amongst the classes. Apparently, a disfavored right. race, right? I mean, right. Um, whereas other races are, are are more favored races, and this whole notion of intersectionality—that there are certain characteristics, and they can be gender characteristics, and they can be, um, I guess, ableist characteristics, and they can also be racial characteristics. But certain of those characteristics should be favored over other characteristics. It, it just strikes me as very contrary to the American way of life, which is this whole notion that we are a melting pot. We all come to America, and based on our merits, we can succeed and thrive and build a better nation. And this is just bringing us back into the sense of uh, of constant struggle among different warring groups, and, and uh, you, you wonder why certain groups say, "Hey, what's going on? This is this is this isn't what I signed up for." You talk about taking us back to the muck. Maybe right there is the best definition that we could all agree on on conservatism, which is thinking that the American ideal is a good thing. And something you said when I was quoting to you, Edie Hirsch, last time we visited on air, which is interesting and. Maybe I'll let you respond to in the very short next break, uh, segment we have. I know you have to go by. Uh, by t- we'll, we'll get you by the time we'll let you leave by the time you have to go. But we have a short segment, and what you said to me about Edie Hirsch, you could easily have just said about Arthur Schlesinger when I'm quoting this melting pot idea or this idea of shared knowledge as creating a society. It's a language we understand it falls on completely deaf ears to the left because it's not their interest. Maybe say something about that being the crux of our fight when we come back. Can we do that? Amen. Be right back with Dr. Tevi Troy. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Tevi Troy, who's been with us this hour, helping us understand conservatism. Tevi, that last point you made... About at bottom, conservatives love America, steam America, and uh, want to uh, preserve and elevate it. Um, And especially even when you think about immigrant groups, you used the phrase melting pot notions of America, that we all become Americans when we come here. And there's no difference between someone whose last name is uh, Troy, Liebson, Jones, or Cortez, I suppose, is one way to put it. Um, But the left is not increasingly of that of that mindset. And when we talk about that, it's just falling on deaf ears, just as when we talk about the import of a common culture is falling on deaf ears, right? This is a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And look at their whole idea of the 1619 project, that America was founded in the sin of slavery rather than in 1776 and and the glory of the beacon of freedom, free society, the beacon of freedom to the world. Uh, I think I think it's a false notion, and it's a dangerous notion, but it's the notion that they are running with, and that notion is is leading the way, and it's a real problem. Do you think that? Um, do you think that then at the end, I'll I'll I'll, I'll let you finish with with where we started, 
which is the line from uh, up from liberalism that conservatism is is weak but viable. You said you changed a little bit between uh, what you say November tenth and today or yesterday. Uh, which direction do you think it's going into now? More viable and less weak, or more weak and less viable? I think it's weaker now yeah. than it was uh, on November tenth. It looked like. The election was a repudiation of the woke left. The Republicans had gained seats in the House and had held their own in the Senate. And it's true they lost the White House, but um, it seemed more like a repudiation of the president or the outgoing president than, than of conservatism itself. Uh, but I think in the subsequent months, you know, you had the Georgia situation and you had the, uh, the, the January 6th situation, and conservatism now seems more divided than it was on that moment after the election. And it, it's problematic in its worse. Uh, has, 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 the left, has the left made that so, or has conservatism made that so? I think conservatives certainly uh, did some of their own shooting themselves in the foot, yeah. but uh, I think the, the left uh, is pressing its advantage, as yeah. uh, anyone would when, when it has, uh, you know, when you have your enemy uh, divided and yeah. fighting amongst themselves, you press the point. Yeah. And I think... Um, I think that's what they're doing. They have pressed the point. Tevi, you've been great, as always. Most recent book, folks, it's a great one. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of learning, and it's easily learned. Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi Troy, bless you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. You bet.